Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Dine Sports Podcast on the Dine Sports Podcast Network. We're thrilled to be talking all things sports with you guys today. We've got a jam-packed episode coming up with three guests. First off, we're going to be sitting down with Shai Davidi from Sportsnet Baseball. He's a columnist and author of the Toronto Blue Jays Big 50 book. He's going to be talking all things AL East, what's going on with the Red Sox, what's happening with the Yankees, and of course, lots of Blue Jays content and predictions for the rest of the season. Then we're going to be sitting down with author Alan D. Gaff, who just wrote Lou Gehrig, The Lost Memoir, which is available everywhere now. Paperback is coming out shortly on May 18th. We're going to talk about one of the forgotten legends of baseball. Right now, all the kids would probably know who Babe Ruth is. I'd venture a guess that a couple have maybe heard of Lou Gehrig before, but probably not getting the chops he deserves based on all the accomplishments he had and the impact on the sport he has. So we talk all things Yankees and Lou with Alan. Then finally, we've got... Alex Lenshaw, who after months of research and writing and doing all sorts of interviews with Olympic athletes, received distinction on her dissertation for her master's in sports management. And we're going to talk about something that maybe has flown a little bit under the radar. And that is some of the campaigns that not only Dick Sporting Goods and Nike and all of that have been running, celebrating women in sport. Well, that's all great. We love to see it. However, traditionally, that hasn't always been the case. Some of the athletes with Nike have even come out and spoken out against the organization with some of their quote unquote clauses in their contracts when it comes to pregnancy or anything like that. Matt leave just severing ties with the organization altogether. So we deep dive a little bit on that as far as women in sports and the monetary side of things. And what does it look like for a female athlete to go out and get sponsored? So great conversation with her jam-packed episode. So let's get right into it. Up first from Sportsnet, Shai Davidi. All right, joining us on the podcast today, we've got Sportsnet baseball columnist and author of the Toronto Blue Jays Big 50 book, one of the best in the biz, Shai Davidi. How are you doing today, sir? I'm all right. How's it going? Not bad. So we are recording this on Monday, May 3rd. The Jays are currently 26 games into their season. They're sitting in second place in the AL East, a game and a half out of first place. But before we get to the actual Jays, just looking at the AL East, What's been the bigger surprise to you? Is it the Red Sox fast start or is it the Yankees maybe historically slow start and now they're slowly getting back to 500, but that, it was rough going in the early season there for them. Yeah, I enjoyed the uh, the panic in New York. There's never a, there's never a slump that can't be overreacted to in that, in that market, which uh, makes it a lot of fun. Uh, I can't say that I'm overly surprised at the Red Sox. I mean, I didn't think they would be so gangbusters, but I thought they were going to be better than a lot of people were giving them credit for. You know, even if you just, you know, I, I did this at the beginning uh, or sort of towards the end of spring training, just looking up and down the roster, you're like, you know, this is a team that could be a pain in a lot of people's butts, especially if they get some pitching, you know, like, you know, is Nick Pavetta going to be a revelation all season? No, but I, I do think he's be a better pitcher than, than what he's shown. You know, they've got, they've gotten some guys healthy back. It's, they've got Chris Sale coming on the horizon, perhaps. Uh, it's just an interesting team in, in a lot of different ways. And, and Heim Bloom, their, uh, their new head of baseball there, uh, is a super bright guy, came from the Rays. Uh, someone who's got uh, a lot of creativity, a lot of a lot of knowledge. So uh, I thought that was going to be a pretty good club. Uh, you know, the Yankees. You know, it's a it's a it's it's a weird three week sample for them. 
right? Uh, you know, I, I'm surprised that they it took them as long to, to get the offense going as it did, uh, and it still isn't what it's going to be. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I'm not, you know, that, that happens. And, uh, you know, again, you know, the, there was a lot of overreaction in New York, which, uh, which was quite comical. Uh, I even saw, saw some tweets about people suggesting they, they need to start tanking and, you know, thinking about 2022, you know, that uh, everyone kind of pulled the reins back. That team's going to be fine. Yeah, yeah. There's never been a uh, story that the New York tabloids can't blow out of proportion eh, when it comes to sports. So you mentioned it, though. I mean, I'm a Boston Red Sox fan. I'll I'll admit that right now. And when I looked at this roster coming into preseason, you know, this team versus the team last year. Yes, they had some injuries and all that last year, but I was thinking it was going to be a long season in Fenway and it was going to be more of the same as last year. Like whether you call it the Alex Cora coming back effect or some of the minor changes they made there, should I be getting excited? Should I be getting all in that they could actually sustain this? Or is this just, you know, Hey, small sample size flash in the pan and they're probably still not a playoff team at the end of the day. Well, I mean, even if you look at some of the, uh, the objective projections uh, you know, they, they like that team. Right. Uh, you know, I, I've seen them in the in the 80, 80 win range, you know, uh, or sort of uh, low to mid uh, mid 80s uh, in projections. Uh, so I think just objectively, there's there's enough talent there to make you think, OK, that's going to be OK. And then you just, you know, for me, uh, just sifting through it. Right. You got Sandra Bogers is great. You got Devers who's great. You got J.D. Martinez. You know, Vasquez is really solid behind the plate. Uh, Verdugo is a nice piece. Uh, you know, I think right away, just off the bat, that's a pretty good mix. Kiki Hernandez is a great player, you know, really underrated, uh, someone that can make a, little, a difference for a team. So, you know, just just on that lineup strength alone, I just thought, all right, well, these guys are going to these guys are going to be tough to play. And, you know, I don't think they're going away. You know, I think that they're going to have a, a pretty steady offense all throughout the year. The question is, you know, will the pitching hold up? You know, I think that was that was really what undermined them last year. Um, but, you know, last year was such an aberration. It's a 60 game season and over 162. There's no way that team is finishing behind Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they're not worse than Baltimore this year. Uh, you know, are they as good as the Rays, the Yankees and the Blue Jays? No, but I don't think the gap is uh, I think the, the, they're closer to those clubs than they are to the Orioles. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. So I'll stay hitched to my bandwagon there and hopefully they can ride <laughs> me into the playoffs. But shifting focus back to the Blue Jays in the early going, what's maybe one thing that's really impressed you about this club and one thing that's maybe been a little bit concerning in the small sample size we've seen. Hmm. All right. So I'm going to say the same thing okay. for, for both what surprised me and what concerns me. Right. Yeah. Uh, because look, yeah, I, I haven't, checked it after the weekend but you know you're they were you know top three team in the american league in era uh you know and i'm sure they're still in that range you know to expect them to have had a month like that from a pitching perspective i don't think that was uh you know on anybody's bingo card Mm -hmm. so you know that that's obviously the reason why they're the position that they are uh and they've also managed to put up those numbers despite uh a whole slate of injuries to pitchers up and down the roster so that to me is has been pretty impressive at the same time you know they can't do this for the whole season right Mm -hmm. they need some innings out of the rotation so the fact that they're you know been sort of running a you know 
quasi two to three man rotation for a period of time, something that was, you know, their off days allowed them to do, but uh, you know, getting Ross Stripling back is going to help. And, you know, if Ryu returns uh, later this week, that'll certainly help and stabilize things. But part of the reason I think you're seeing so many of their pitchers end up on the injured list is like that bullpen is carrying uh, too much of the load right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can do it for a small sample uh, for, you know, a shortened period, but trying to do that over the course of 162 is just impossible. So that's got to correct and they've got to get some more innings out of the rotation or they're just going to destroy and shred the arms of the relievers who've done such a tremendous job to this point. Yeah. And speaking of pitching, I mean, in the offseason, all the talk was the Springer signings, the Simeon signings, all, all the big name offensive players. But maybe an under the radar pickup was Steven Matz, who, you know, didn't get a lot of fanfare. But if you look at him, he's leading the team in wins and strikeouts and batting average against. So how much of this do you think, other than staying healthy, is him really turning the corner and is sustainable? Or do you think that this is just, again, flash in the pan and they really do need to st still address that front of the rotation piece pitcher down the line, whether it's through trade or promotion from within the organization? Well, there's a few things there. So let's start with this. Like Matt's is, this has always been within his band of capability, right? Mm -hmm. You know, he's had good years in the past. He's gotten away from that. He's had issues commanding his fastball. You know, his sinker wasn't sinking. It was getting hit. So this was somebody who was in need of some tweaks and you could reasonably expect a correction in performance and Robbie Ray, similar to that. Right. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, you know, maybe he didn't expect Robbie Ray to be quite as dominant as, as he's been, but, you know, he's a former all-star uh, and he's certainly back to that type of form, uh, which is really bodes well for the Blue Jays. Now, uh, you know, those two, those two ads were great. And I think the reason they didn't get a lot of fanfare was because there was an element, a significant element of risk there, right? You, you were buying a lot of volatility in the performance and so far, uh, you know, the, the bets have proven to, to be very good ones. You know, the Blue Jays made a bet on Kirby Yates and that one had, didn't play out so well. So, you know, that that's part of uh, how it goes there. You know, same with Tanner Rourke last year and, you know, having to designate him for assignment. I think the, the challenge is that there's just not enough of that kind of pitching, mm -hmm. right? So if you think, all right, Ryu, Mats and Robbie Ray as a, you know, front three, all right, that's good. But you've got to get, some significant innings out of the back in the rotation. So, you know, is Stripling going to emerge and, you know, go walk the rest of the way as a starter, you know, something that he's done in the past and, and been good, but, you know, he hasn't done it in a bit of time. So that's a bit of a question mark. You know, the Blue Jays were hoping that Nate Pearson would emerge and that hasn't happened yet. And now he's at, you know, AAA trying to find himself a bit. Uh, you know, Thomas Hatch was uh, certainly someone who was pushing himself onto the radar, but he's rebuilding and isn't going to be a factor in the near term. So, you know, I think you, you look at it and there's like, there's definitely a hole there. Uh, at the same time, the Blue Jays have the opportunity to add. Uh, they're they're going to have the financial resources uh, at a time where not a lot of teams want to carry money necessarily. Uh, they've got the prospect base from which to deal. So, you know, they certainly have the ability to add midseason. I think at some point they're going to have to.
we see it all the time where, you know, an AL pitcher will go to the NL and have a breakout season, but going the opposite direction doesn't always pan out, right? But you just mentioned it. He's clearly made some tweaks to his game there. Is there anything that you can point to as definitively saying, like, this is one area where Matt's has really improved and this is why we're finally seeing the results in a Blue Jays uniform as opposed to what was happening in New York for all those years? Well, I mean, the fastball command and, and just not not just sort of command, uh, just uh, strictly from a walk spaces, but just in terms of where he's placing his fastball, you know, has, has been good. And, and the fastball has been a great pitch. And, you know, everyone will talk about the, the complimentary pieces, but, you know, they had to get the fastball right. Mm-hmm. And once you get the fastball right, then all of a sudden he can, everything else comes into play for him. And, you know, he, he was saying last year that he felt like that, he had a little bit of uptick in velocity and then maybe he started chasing velo a little bit and that started disrupting his ability to spot the, 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 the heater, the, where he wants to, where he wants to, where he needs to. Um, and, you know, instead of it sinking, it just ended up riding up and staying flat in the hittable parts of the zone, which is typically a pretty bad recipe. And, you know, he also had uh, you know, issue with his shoulder at one point. So there was maybe a, a health issue that was impacting him as well. Uh, so I think those are the pieces there, but, you know, the, the key thing, I think from the Blue Jays perspective, you know, every pitching coach preaches this, you know, Pete Walker is big on this, but like, you know, make sure your fastball's right. Mm-hmm. And if your fastball's right, then everything else typically falls into place. And, you know, they got the fastball right with him and he's starting to, it's starting to pay some dividends. We just mentioned as well too, Nate Pearson just got activated off the injured list. He's been designated for assignment at the alternating training site. Do we have a timeline on when fans can sort of expect to see him making his big leg debut in 2021 there, or is that still TBD at this point? So it's been pretty interesting uh, to hear the Blue Jays talking about Pearson where, you know, it went from, you know, this guy's going to be back to he's got to, uh, he's competing for a job. And so right now, you know, the results of his last couple outings at the alternate training site, you know, didn't go really well. And it was more, it was more performance as opposed to stuff or health. That Mm -hmm. was the issue. And so he has to get himself right. He has to be pitching the way that he's capable of pitching. At least that's the, the impression that the Blue Jays have given off about him. So, you know, the, from a timeline perspective, this isn't about, anymore about building up or getting your pitch count up or whatever the case may be. This is really about him locking down performance and showing them that he's ready to, to be a part of it. Because the last thing that you want to do is take somebody who, you know, had a, you know, a, and then even transition to the majors last year uh, and then throw them into the big leagues this year and say, Hey, figure it out. They want them to get, they want, they, because, you know, for a couple of reasons, one, this isn't a developmental year for the team anymore right? This is a, a win year. So they can't just throw him, can't just risk games with him saying, let, let him figure out and figure it out. And then, you know, dumping that on the bullpen. Uh, and, and two, it's just, you know, he hasn't performed at that level yet. And, you know, rather they want him performing really well when he comes to the big leagues, as opposed to trying to find something while he's in the big leagues. Yeah. And with the emergence of some of the players like Ray and like Matt's and all that quiet murmurings from some of the fan base and some online talking heads and whatnot of, well, does Pearson actually move to the bullpen or become sort of that middle innings reliever? Like, how would you manage him when he does make his debut? Just stay the course with the front of the rotation or do you see him switching roles a little bit? 
Yeah, I mean, he's a starting pitcher. You've got to, you've got to, there's absolutely no reason to not play that out. You know, he's got uh, three primary weapons that he can use really effectively, a fourth that, you know, is developing, you know, there's, uh, you know, I get the, the, we want, we want results right now feeling and Mm -hmm. the impatience, but, you know, the trajectory with young players is rarely, uh, rarely uniform Mm -hmm. and, and strictly upwards, right? You've got to ride it out a little bit. And you know, one of the reasons that the Blue Jays have talked so much about the depth is because it gives them the ability to, to ride this out. You know, their, their season isn't hinging on Nate Pearson. It shouldn't hinge on Nate Pearson. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, 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 I understand the impatience and everybody's excitement and you're like, oh, 100 out of the bullpen, that's going to play. But yeah, 100 out of the, out of the rotation it plays a lot better and you know that you have to think about the the value proposition over the long term with Nate Pearson and what he brings and he's got the potential to be an impact pitcher for a long long time and if we look at some of the other side of the ball there as far as Blue Jays wonder kid prospects there you've got three of them Bichette and Vladdy are are off to a blistering start Biggio's kind of stumbling out of the gates a little bit though is there anything that you've noticed that's changed from last year to this year or is this just early season bump in the road and he'll get it sorted out yeah well I mean he's playing third base and third base you know people just aren't maybe recognizing how much of a challenge that is and haven't really given him sort of any sort of fair sample of, of, you know, games to acclimate to that position. You know, he's, he played, I'm going to, I'm going to probably screw up these numbers because I've got too many in my head, but (laughs) it was roughly, I think 45 ish games in the minor leagues at third base. And he's around 30 right now at the big league level. Mm -hmm. Um, And those 45 games were scattered over several years in the minor leagues. So that's not, uh, a re- reasonable sample for to expect a guy who's you know uh, a solid defender but not a gifted def- defender uh, to just acclimate to a position uh, especially at the big league level where balls are regularly coming at you in excess of 100 miles an hour and you've got the shortest distance from bat to ball mm-hmm. on the field to save for the pitcher so I, I think that there's got to be some runway for him there's got to be some opportunity for him to have some development and growing pains uh and you know uh I, I know a lot of people like to pick on kevin biggio or you know find holes in his game but you know i think he's really an underappreciated player uh he brings a lot of elements that i think are really really important to uh to a winning club uh and he, a lot has been asked of him and you know he hasn't complained once he's never put himself before the needs of the team uh and that that to me is uh, the sign of a pretty special player so patience is what fans need with Biggio is what you're saying then. Well, I think in general, you know, I look, I get it. You know, it's uh, it's easy to sort of lose track. Uh, and I think last year to an extent has skewed people's perceptions too, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, last year you're like almost 40% of the, uh, through 40% of the season at this point, right? It's yeah. uh, everything matters. You're, you're almost at 50%. Um, and it's like every game counts. And now it's like, all right, let's just chill. There's, there's still five more months of this, right? <laughs> like, you know, the, the, this is one of six. Let's, uh, let's, let's breathe easy. There's a long, long time for things to correct. 
So obviously, Vladdy Jr. is leading the Jays in almost every statistical category at this point here. And after two solid but unspectacular seasons at the major league level, he finally seems to be piecing it all together and living up to that potential that people knew was in him for all of these years. Other than his weight loss, is there anything you've noticed that he's doing differently, whether it's at the plate or defensively or anything that you can sort of say, all right, this, he's changed his approach or he's taking more balls or anything like that. Like, what have you noticed in his approach? Well, I mean, you, you see the, the discipline and the control. I mean, he's walking more than he's striking out, uh, which is obviously uh, a tremendous feat, especially in today's game. Uh, but, you know, a lot of it is rooted within the weight and not, not the weight loss. And it's not just about being thinner. It's also, you know, make, uh, you know, making changes physically in order to increase his athleticness and to, to get him back to the athlete that he was. Uh, and he can just physically do a lot of things that he couldn't do in past years, uh, just in terms of the way that he's swinging, the balance in his swing, the control of his body. Uh, just even just from a stamina, uh, you know, he can carry a lot more work right now. And like, you know, hitters take probably, I don't know, hundreds, uh, you know, 100 plus 200 swings in a day uh, leading up to a game and, you know, maybe a bit afterwards, you know, that takes a physical toll. And if you're not in a good physical space uh, to, to deal with all that, to cope with that, then, you know, it's going to catch up with you. And, you know, even if you break down his swing, from you know say when the season opened last year in late july uh to when it finished at the end of september like you can see a massive difference and there's even more of a difference this year it's just it's it's under control uh it's incredibly powerful you see that that you know lightning quick bat speed that carried him through you know his hands are super fast um you know pitchers just can't beat him right now uh, and you know, a lot of times if he's going to make an out, it's because he's chased or, you know, he guessed at a wrong pitch. So that, that's what I, that's what I see. And, you know, I think that's the difference. Um, and, uh, you know, he, you know, he shortchanged himself a little bit, uh, you know, the, the past couple of years, he didn't give himself the full opportunity to be as successful as he can be. And, you know, I think he realized that, you know, he took it upon himself, which is really important because it's coming from him as opposed to, you know, the team pushing him into it. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's been accountable and uh, he's certainly reaping the benefits of that right now. Yeah. Small sample size, but I think we can uh, rest assured that the people who are concerned that this weight loss would affect his power stroke <laughs> can uh, calm down a little bit. Then, eh? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there. see, I think that there's, there's certain kind of weight, like there's good weight and there's bad weight, right? And, you know, he just lost bad weight. And like, when he was ripping through the minor leagues, you know, his body looked more like it does right now, right? Mm -hmm. He did, it wasn't that, you know, that weight was a big part of his success, you know, the say, like the way it was for say, a CC Sabathia or something like that. You know, this is, uh, this is who he was. Um, and, uh, you know, he became something that he wasn't and that took away from him. All right, I'm going to give you a Sophie's Choice option here. And gun to your head, if you could only pick one of the three prospects, well, I can't even say that they're <laughs> prospects at this point here, but, you know, Biggio, Bichette, or Vladdy Jr. to build around for the next 15 years, and the other two have to leave, who are you picking out of those three? You know, it's funny, we have this conversation all the time. Like, we had it a lot of the way, uh, you know, like, who has the better career, Bichette versus Guerrero? You know, uh, I think offensively, Guerrero probably ends up 
the the better player. Uh, but Bichette is going to give you more value defensively mm-hmm. uh, as a you know a middle infielder, even if he shifts to second base eventually, or whether or not he stays at shortstop. So he's going to give you a little bit more defensive value. So I probably take the two way player, uh, but you know it's really hard because you know, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. could be, you know, a five to six win player just be, just on the basis of his bat alone. That's how good an offensive player he is. Well, hopefully the Jays never have to make that decision there, but uh, <laughs> always fun to play the what if game. So, you know, definitely a lot of sports pundits had the Jays sort of pegged preseason as maybe a wild card team making the playoffs, whether they actually move on or not up for debate, but with the small sort of sample size that you've seen, is that sort of where you see them landing this year or are you moving them up or down a little bit based on early season results? Yeah, I thought that they were going to be a wildcard team. Uh, they've got a little bit more pitching than I'd expect, but you know, they, they're, they've gone too far into their depth right now that, you know, that they have to correct some of their pitching, uh, their, their, their issues in the rotation or else, you know, that's just going to, that's going to evaporate on them. So, you know, I, I still think that they've got a, sh- a pretty good chance to be a wildcard team. Uh, you know, the, the league has been interesting in terms of the way that it started out, you know, obviously there's always a long way to go, but, you know, uh, I expected Oakland to have fallen off a bit more than they have. And, you know, they just, you know, com- are always finding ways to, to be a good club. Um, you know, the angels, I think are going to be a factor this year. You know, the Astros don't seem like they're going away. You know, the, the central is a little bit deeper as well now with the white Sox and twins and, and Cleveland still hanging on uh, Kansas city being better uh, than they've been. Uh, it's just a, it's just a deeper league right now. There are, there are fewer wins around it. So, you know, I do think that the, they've got a pretty good shot at being a wildcard team. Um, and, you know, if the Yankees, for some reason, don't don't correct or, you know, Stanton and Judge and, you know, the, they break down physically as they have so often, uh, then all of a sudden this division opens up a little bit. Uh, so, you know, I, I do think there's the upside for more there. But, you know, I think, uh, you know, wild card is a, is, a, is a reasonable expectation for this team. We said it at the top of the show, but you've got a book, the Toronto Blue Jays Big 50, out right now. For those that aren't familiar with the concept of the book, what's what's sort of the overview of what they can expect in it? Right. So this is uh, an update to the uh, the first version of the book. And the first version came in 2016. Uh, and it's really looking at sort of 50 of the, you know, people and moments and achievements uh, that you know, to me, that in my opinion, were sort of the most notable in franchise history. And I tried to uh, make it a, a bit of a, of a histor- history of the team. Uh, and, you know, uh, at the end of last season, I was thinking, you know, maybe we can pull off an update and we put it together pretty quickly. Uh, I wrote about 30,000 new words for for the update. And, you know, there were, there was a lot that happened. So this was the, the original came out in the spring of 2016. And then uh, there's been a lot of change uh, in the years since. Uh, and so, you know, I was able to add a chapter on Jose Batista in it and, and his story. Uh, and Jose was generous to spend some time with me for that. So there's some, some new thoughts from him that people haven't read before, which is going to be fun. Uh, you know, there's a, a new chapter on Mark Shapiro as well. Uh, a look at the 2020 pandemic season, and uh, uh, it was uh, it was fun to do. Um, and, you know, I think that this is uh, it's a fun format uh, that, you know, that could be updated periodically. And so, you know, the publisher does a few of these uh, these types of books, a bit of a series uh, around uh, around different teams in the majors. But this is the first update. So 
uh, we'll see how it goes. Hopefully it'll be well received. So for those who might have already bought the first version of the book, did you end up taking some of the 50 out and replacing them with new ones? Or is it the original 50 plus all these new chapters? How did you format that? No, the, the format is 50. So what uh, what I did was a, a few chapters disappeared um, and then a few chapters were uh, repurposed, uh, I guess would be the way to put it. So, you know, something that might've been one chapter, I might've taken chunks of that and, you know, broken it off into different chapters. So in the last one, there was one chapter on the uh, emergences of Jose Batista and Edwin Encarnacion. And so some of that is now in the Jose Batista chapter. Uh, and some of it is in a bit of a, a separate Edwin Encarnacion chapter. Okay. So did you get final say of that? Or was this sort of a team process as far as, okay, I think this one should go or we're replacing this one with this one? How much? You no, it was all my all my call. The publisher was like, "Yeah, you do it. Just gotta stay at 50. Uh, but I've got uh, you know uh, a couple close friends and and Mike Wilner uh, and John Lott and uh, former uh, John Lott, the, the now retired writer at the Athletic, Wilner, formerly the Blue Jays broadcast, now the Toronto Star. Uh, they were uh, they were really helpful and sort of like you know what what should I keep? What what needs to go? And so. You know, for me, it was hard because, you know, I wrote them and I believed in every one of the chapters, but there were a few I thought from last time that were, weren't quite as strong as a few of the others. Uh, there was a chapter on, uh, you know, the cycles, uh, you know, the from Kelly Gruber, Jeff Fry, and I was like, you know, this is great, but it's not, it's not as strong as some of the other stuff. So that was one of the ones that got sacrificed. Uh, there was a chapter on Frank Thomas hitting his 500th home run with the Blue Jays, which was a neat moment, but you know, it's not necessarily, it's, it was a unique moment in the franchise history, but not necessarily one of its greatest. So that's another one that, uh, that, that uh, had to be removed. Uh, so, you know, the, it was a, a, a bit of a difficult process, sacrificing it and just kind of figuring out how everything was going to flow. Uh, but, you know, I think the original book was about 85,000 words or something like that. And, uh, you know, so there, and there's 30,000 new ones in this one. So uh, I, it's, uh, you know, like maybe sort of a fifth of the book sort of gets updated from a chapter perspective, but it's almost half the book in, in sort of new material. We said Sophie's Choice earlier about the prospects there, but when it's <laughs> writing babies, it really is sort of a difficult process to pick. Yeah, de definitely, definitely. But yeah. a fun one for sure. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. We really appreciate it. For those that are listening, though, what are the best places to either see your columns, pick up your book, connect with you on social media, any of that good stuff? All right. So sportsnet.ca is where all my work appears. Uh, I do a little bit of uh, work for Baseball America as well uh, and, their, uh, and their organization reports. I write the Blue Jays ones there. Uh, obviously, I'm uh, on the pregame show with Sportsnet as well. So from a TV perspective, regularly on the Sportsnet radio stations. Uh, so that's another, another uh, avenue. And then uh, social media, uh, Twitter at Chai Davidi is uh, where I handle uh, and they're on Instagram as well. Uh, and then from, for the book, you know, uh, your favorite reseller, uh, uh, excuse me, your favorite bookseller, uh, as of May the 4th, I believe, the, it was supposed to be in stores then, our stores are unfortunately still closed here in Ontario, uh, but, you know, fingers crossed that will change at uh, some point, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I do think, uh, my understanding is that uh, Indigo and Amazon and uh, other online retailers should have those uh, relatively soon if they don't already. 
Amazing. Well, there you go. May the 4th. So it's coming out tomorrow. So for those that are listening, go get your copy. It's updated. All sorts of new stuff in there. Shai Davidi from Sportsnet. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. Wanted to take a quick break to talk to everyone about our friends over at MyBookie. MyBookie.ag is the place to go for all of your sports betting needs. Right now, if you head over to their website and use the promo code DINESSPORTS, that's D-Y-N-E-S, sports with an S at the end of it, you will get a matching deposit on your first deposit up to $1,000. So you can get some free cash to actually play with there if you want to go and Test your luck and test your sports knowledge. Just the other night, I sprinkled a little something, something on the Sens to beat the Jets. And lo and behold, they did. The hometown team came through for your boy. So head over to mybookie.ag, or you can even head over to dinespressbox.com. We've got all sorts of links up there that'll take you right to the site as well, too. Please gamble responsibly. Play within your limit. If you think you have a problem, there are all sorts of resources that you can access both through their website and online as well. But make sure to use the promo code DINESSPORTS when you head over there to place your first bet. Good luck. All right, and joining us on the podcast today, we've got author Alan D. Gaff, who has released Lou Gehrig, The Lost Memoir, which is available everywhere now and with a paperback version about to be released mid-May. Alan, thank you so much for joining us today. I've been looking forward to talking with you, Kyle. Amazing. So this isn't your typical biography because a lot of the subject matter was actually old newspaper columns from back in the day that Lou Gehrig had a hand in writing himself. So tell us a little bit just about the basis of the book for those who might not be familiar with it. Well, the the book actually is in two parts. Uh, Lou Gehrig does the first part and I do the second part. He's a a great co-author. He never argues. Everything's done on time. So couldn't ask for a better partner. His columns appeared in 1927, beginning in August during the great home run derby between himself and Babe Ruth. Mm-hmm. The uh, agent that he had at the time was Christy Walsh. And Christy wanted to get, uh, well, get a, a, an opportunity to take advantage of Lou Gehrig's fame at that point. Mm-hmm. And the New York market was saturated with Yankees this, Yankees that. So one of the things he did is he tried to sell loose columns in smaller markets across the country. The market that I chose to use was the uh, the one in California. Mm-hmm. So I love the fact that, first of all, everything had been put on microfilm so that I didn't have to transcribe all this or type it all out at mm-hmm. the time. So that, that was terrific. But the interesting thing about this was that after 1927, all of these columns, which ended up to be 29, had just been ignored or overlooked by historians, especially baseball historians, because nobody thought to look for Yankee information in Oakland, California. Everyone sort of has a fairly good idea of Lou Gehrig, the baseball player, but when you were doing your research for this and whether it was through the columns or just even background information or anything like that, what was your impression of Lou Gehrig off the field? So if we put the baseball player to the side, what was Lou Gehrig like as a person? I I think Lou Gehrig would be the kind of guy that everyone would like to have for a friend. Mm -hmm. He was dependable. He was charming. The, the women loved him because he was a handsome guy. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he was just a really all around great guy, a sportsman in every stretch of the word. And in all my research, I never heard of a single person saying anything bad about him as a person. There obviously were, were spats with umpires or individual players over his long career, but no one ever said anything really bad about him and his character. So on the one hand, you've got the 1927 Yankees, who are arguably one of the greatest baseball teams to ever play the game. And you've got the out there, Sultan of Swat, brash personality, Babe Ruth, and then sort of the more reserved or shy Lou Gehrig. How did those two get along as teammates through some of the writings that Lou Gehrig put out? Well, essentially, there were, there were two groups of people on the Yankees team in 1927. There were the people were the guys who were like Lou, who were more sedate, uh, more conservative, like um, Earl Combs and Herb Pennock. Combs would read his Bible in the hotel at night. Uh, Pennock was a, a, a great guy, just like Ruth was. But then on the other side, there was the Babe Ruth faction, which basically all the guys believed in the three W's, wine, women, and wieners. <laughs> Babe Ruth loved hot dogs. He loved to eat. That's why I included that as the third W, but everybody on his side of the, um, of the equation pretty much could be categorized as hedonistic, I suppose. The, the, the stories about them are some things I couldn't put in the book, mm-hmm. literally. They were always causing trouble. Um, John Grabowski, one of the catchers, went out had a good time at night, came back in, thought he'd take a dip in the pool, jumped in. It was dry. <laughs> there, there was a, a, basically pretty much everybody on Ruth's side did the same things. If one of the guys took a, a woman back to his hotel room, the guys that aren't in the room would hold somebody up like jugglers so he could look through the transom over the door and give the guys down on the floor a play-by-play of what was going on inside. And, and all of this was uh, fueled by as much alcohol as they could consume. Um, Babe Ruth and, and Bob Musel roomed together. And whenever they were on the road, the first thing they would do was get in the hotel room, get naked, and fill the bathtub with beer and ice. <laughs> it, it, was, it was not the baseball that you see today, I don't believe. Hopefully not. <laughs> who, who knows what's going on behind some of those closed doors and clubhouses. But with those two different personality types, then would Gehrig and Ruth really hang out much outside of the baseball field? Or they sort of just kept to their own factions then, it sounds like. Yeah, it, they kept to their own factions. But uh, essentially, Babe Ruth acted like a big brother to Lou. Mm-hmm. Uh, he tried to give him advice on hitting. He tried to give him advice on investing. Babe Ruth had made so many mistakes. He didn't want this new kid coming along to make the same mistakes he did. You know, before the 1927 series, he had admitted that he had squandered almost a quarter of a million dollars of his pay and endorsements. Mm -hmm. So he he did not want Lou to go down that path. Do you think maybe that this reserved personality or maybe not being as brash or out there as Ruth is why nowadays when people are rhyming off the legends of the game, Babe Ruth's name is always out there. You can ask any eight or 10 year old and they've probably heard of Babe Ruth, at least in passing. But unless you're a Yankees fan or or a fan of sort of that, that era of baseball, Lou Gehrig seems to get overlooked a little bit there. Do you think that his personality played into that maybe? 
Oh, certainly. Yeah, he was uh, he was shy. Where Ruth and his friends would go out and drink and uh, look for women, uh, Lou would be content to take long walks or ride on a roller coaster for an hour, or you know, hang around in a movie with uh, with some of the other guys on his faction of the of the Yankees. So yeah, he he was not the outgoing, sporty type that uh, that Babe was. At the time, baseball players were some of the most recognizable faces in all of America when we're talking about the 1927 Yankees here. Lou, at that point, his star is probably as high as it was ever going to be. Was he one to kind of lean in and enjoy that celebrity or was that kind of a weird experience to him? Like, how did, how did he react to being one of the most recognizable faces in the country? He tried to avoid it as much as possible. Whenever there were uh, interviews to be given, he always tried to hang around at the back of the crowd so nobody would actually ask him questions. Um, there was one incident where he went shopping with his wife in the 30s, and he was recognized in a department store, and every kid in the store within a couple of minutes knew he was there. Instead of standing there like Ruth would have done and uh, you know talked with the kids, maybe signed something for them, he went and hid in the uh, restroom. <laughs> That was basically his response to a lot of the publicity. And at the time that he's, you know, got these columns coming out as well, too, he was uh, roughly, I think, 24 years old, and he's essentially got a, a life story at age 24, whether you can believe it or not. What kind of blowback did he get from that? Like, did his teammates think it was a good idea? Did other opposing rivals on other teams give him any kind of grief about that? Or like, what, what was the reaction from actual ball players while this was going on? I never really found any reaction to his columns. Um, at that stage, al almost every star had made arrangements to file stories in the newspapers, either under his own name or under his own name with the assistance of a, what they called a ghostwriter. But I, I think that's a, a derogatory term, actually. I mean, without these ghostwriters, we would really know hardly anything about the early era of the 1900s as far as baseball and what players thought, what they felt, and, and, and that, because a lot of these players were not educated to the point where Lou Gehrig was. He'd been to Columbia University for a couple of years, so he could start writing these columns by himself. Now, as the series appeared in the paper, it was announced that uh, Lou would provide coverage of the, uh, of the World Series because everyone knew with the Yankees' schedule <laughs> and their victory margin, there's no doubt they were going to be in the World Series. But the, the problem with the World Series is everything is time sensitive. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're a day late with your article, it's worthless to put it into a paper. So they apparently... Lou and Christy Walsh got together and arranged for Ford Frick to help him with the writing. And I suspect his help was uh, to polish it, maybe add a few words, but essentially the bulk of it would be Lou Gehrig's own work. Yeah, because that, that was going to be my next question was, it, it wasn't uncommon at this era for, you know, an athlete to sort of attach his name to something, but what percentage of it is actually him versus, as you were saying, whether it's a ghostwriter with the assistance of an agent or something. When you were going through this, did you get the sense that most of these columns were genuinely Lou or did you feel like, okay, well, there's some truth to this, but it was probably, you know, maybe Hollywooded up a little bit by the agent trying to market his player? Well, the, the original columns appeared under the heading of following the babe, 
because he was fourth in the batting lineup behind Babe, who was third. But I'm convinced that all of the columns in following the Babe, the 29 original, were Lou's. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons is what we in the, my family, because I'm including my son, Don, and my wife, Maureen, in all of the uh, production of the book. Um, it was what we would call um, his trademark humility mm-hmm. comes through. That's hard to fake if you're a, even if you're a professional writer. Another thing is the columns didn't arrive in the order they were supposed to as soon as they were supposed to. If it had been someone helping him, they would not get paid until the articles appeared. So they would have a strict schedule where Lou could take his time. And if he skipped a day or two, uh, it's no big deal. They would still print. But uh, I, I think the vast majority, if not all of them, in following the babe section, they all belong to Lou. And Ford Frick helped with the uh, the World Series games because of the tense, tense and tight deadline uh, that they had to meet. What's something that was maybe interesting to you about Lou or his life, whether it was baseball related or personal life that maybe didn't make the final edit of the book, but you just sort of had squirreled away as an interesting little nugget. I think the interesting thing more than anything else was just the people he interacted with. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that his favorite pitcher was Elam Von Gilder because he got his first major league hit off of him in a game. Well, the story behind Elam is he was a farmer from Missouri and he had a, a walk like he was plowing a field that had just rained and the field was full of clay. <laughs> so when he would come in from the bullpen, everybody in the stadium would go boom, boom for every step he took. If you could imagine 15 to 20,000 people just chanting boom, boom with every step a man takes to the you know, pitching mound, that's got to be crazy. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's people like that, kind of the, the players in the background that I wish I had more time to amplify. 1927, Gehrig, he's 24. He's at the peak of his powers. He's got the whole world in front of him. And when you're putting this together, ultimately knowing how it's going to end with the ALS and his career being cut short and his life ultimately succumbing to this disease. Was it sort of a weird feeling reading through some of those columns with the optimism and him thinking, you know, the whole world is in front of him, knowing how the story ends? It, it was a little strange. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's like, well, my, my, um, my background has been in military history. Mm-hmm. And in every case, I know the outcome when I start. Yeah. which is essentially what Lou Gehrig's story was. But yeah, to, to see him young and vibrant and fresh and just, you know, naive in, in a lot of respects and knowing what's coming, it's just like, oh my God, it's like a train wreck. You got to watch, but you don't want to see it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you just mentioned it as well, too. You, you've done several historical books now and some sports related, some other relations there. Was doing one about a beloved sports icon like Lou Gehrig tougher or easier in your estimation when you were putting this all together? Oh, I think it was definitely easier <clears throat> and definitely more fun. Mm-hmm. Um, like I say, I've, I've done military history and this is the only book I've written where only one person dies. Yeah. <laughs> No uh, you know, literally, I mean, you yeah. know, I've, I've written about dozens or 
hundreds at a time. So it was uh, kind of refreshing to go about it from a, from a different angle, using the skills that I had learned in military history and transferring them to baseball. I think I've done a pretty good job sorting through the, the it's hard to say, maybe misstatements and errors over, over the years. I've run across a number of things that were, uh, no, that's not right. I mean, some of the things that I found for this book was the birthplace of Lou Gehrig. Everyone had already got it in the wrong, had already gotten it in the wrong spot. But in 1953, his mother went to dedicate a plaque outside the building where he had been born. Mm -hmm. And I figure if anyone knows where he was born, it was his mom. So <laughs> I would trust her over historians. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I was able to do was write about the, uh, the famous fight between him and uh, Cobb in 1926. Mm -hmm. uh, other people had alluded to it, but had never been able to point to the exact date and the circumstances behind it. That was, that was fun. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing that I really enjoyed, most people when they write a biography end with a person's death, burial, and maybe a few words, and, and that's over. Mm -hmm. I added a chapter on the end to show the impact that Lou Gehrig and his image made on the United States in World War II. Hearing how Lou Gehrig spoke about his teammates and put, hearing all the stories, whether it was from Lou or from Babe's perspective or anything like that, if you were going to go back and write another novel about the 1927 New York Yankees and you couldn't pick Lou Gehrig or Babe Ruth as a subject matter, was there one teammate who sort of stuck out to you as like, huh, he'd be a pretty interesting research project there and figuring out what made him tick? Wow. We'll see more, I think, would be fun. He was a, uh, a pitcher mo used mostly, I think, for, uh, for um, coming in when the, uh, when the starting pitchers started to fade. But he was not only a great pitcher this year, but he was probably the worst pitcher imaginable on a Major League Baseball team. <laughs> I, I think his uh, batting average for 1927 was .08. Oh, he was terrible. But the best way to describe it is uh, Babe Ruth bet him $20 at 15 to 1 odds that he wouldn't get three hits during the year. It was almost, I think, to September before he got his third hit. Babe paid up and Wilson Moore used it to buy two mules for his farm. <laughs> Called him Babe and Ruth. <laughs> so he was an interesting guy. Yeah. Uh, Herb, Pen Herb Pennick would be another one. Uh, he was also a terrible pitcher. Well, he was a great pitcher, but he was a terrible, terrible batter. One thing they said about uh, Pennock was he couldn't hit the water if he fell out of a canoe. Mm -hmm. So these guys are important additions to the team, but they're only specialists. Yeah. They're, they're not the superstars. And we wonder why the American League adopted the designated hitter rule with uh, 0 0.08 batting averages like that. And all <laughs> back. I, I think it's fairly obvious, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Before we go, could I read you one blurb from the back? For sure. This one is from Bob Costas. It didn't arrive in time to be on the uh, hardback, but it's on the back of the paperback. Nice. And Mr. Costas says, Lou Gehrig provides insight 
into the baseball of that era, the tone of the times, and Gehrig himself, an endearing addition to the historical record. It's like, that fits really well with all of the other positive reviews we've had for the book. Absolutely. So if you haven't gotten a chance to go out and get your hard copy, paperback is coming out shortly. Make sure you go out and grab it and make a great addition to any collection, whether you're a Yankees fan or just fan of baseball in general. Before we get to Alex's interview, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you guys about our new monthly contest that has just launched going on from now until May 15th. If you are a fan of sports, this is probably the easiest way to get yourself a new jersey. You can win a jersey of your choice, doesn't matter if it's NFL, NHL, NBA, MLB, whatever the case is, whatever your favorite team and favorite player is, you can win yourself some new threads for this upcoming season simply by entering our monthly contest. All of the details are on all of our social media channels. So head over to any of them, whether you like Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or whatever. All of our handles are at the same. They're all at Dine Sports. So check out contest details to get in. It's pretty simple. You share the story to your Instagram story or you retweet it or you share it on Facebook. Go and subscribe to our YouTube channel and you're in. Winner gets a jersey of their choice. It's really that simple. One winner drawn at random on May 15th. Head over, check out those details today. Maybe score yourself a pretty sweet little prize to keep this season going. All right, and joining us on the podcast today, we've got Alex Lenshaw. Alex, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down with us. Thank you so much for having me. So you are a very bright individual. You have spent many, many years in school getting all sorts of very expensive pieces of paper. So right off the top here, why don't you just give us sort of a real quick overview on what your master's thesis was and, and sort of how that all came together? Yeah, of course. So um, I just recently graduated from the University of London, Birkbeck, which is in the heart of London. And um, I completed my master's dissertation where I was examining um, elite athlete mothers uh, and sort of their experiences um, and the idea of does becoming an athlete mother mean that your career is going to end? Um, and I, you know, I just wanted to know sort of more about their experiences and the pol the policies in place and the. Um, resources that are provided to these women. And it was a really, really cool experience. And how did it dawn on you to come up with that as the central theme for your master's thesis? I'd say probably 2019, I think it was, when uh, Allison Felix, Kara Goucher, and Lisa Montagna sort of did their open ed pieces with the New York Times, um, all about sort of the dream maternity. And you know they were really outspoken about their issues with Nike. Uh, I was really interested in that and wanting to learn more about that. And, you know, I, I was I was shocked and sort of surprised that these women are having to choose between motherhood and having an, uh, an elite athletic career. And, you know, I thought, let's dive into this and see what's going on here. This, do this doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem right. And, yeah, I, wanted to, I just really want to learn more about it. And... Obviously, in recent years and even in recent months, especially in the wake of the NCAA Women's March Madness Tournament, which was just a whole other debacle in and of itself, Nike has released some ads, there have been some op-ed pieces, Dick Sporting Goods has had some commercials out there reaffirming their commitment to women in sports. 
how much of that do you take at face value and believe they're making a concentrated effort to actually make some progress versus this is just sort of a PR stunt and they're just putting a spin on it to try and capitalize on a hot button topic of the day? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I give my props to Nike. They have a phenomenal marketing department and that is something that they've always been good at. And I don't see that ever changing. My biggest issue with the most recent Nike ad where they're promoting their new maternity line is that it was just two years ago that th this was all coming about with these athletes coming forward and saying, they're you know, talking about their experience as, as sponsored athletes with Nike. And Nike's never come forward to say that, look, this happened. This was our mistake. We own up to it. Here's what we're doing to improve. They, I mean, they have um, released that they've changed their Nike, their policies and their contracts for female athletes, but they've never apologized to these women. And I think that's where my biggest issue is, you know, when I'm watching this ad, I'm thinking of Elise Montagna, Allison Felix and Kara Goucher, who were outspoken about this and how hard that must have been to to watch this ad, they, these women came forward and they're sort of the reason why Nike is changing their policies. And yet it's, it's, it's like a slap in the face almost for these women. On the flip side, I look at the Dick Sporting Goods ad and I, I think it's a little more genuine. I think the fact that they have female leadership and women sitting at the executive level is a huge deal. Um, I think also the fact that, you know, you look at the NCAA women's basketball tournament and when all the controversy sort of came out about the women's locker or the women's weight room and everything, Dix was right there saying, we are loading up these U-Hauls, you know, we're sending you equipment. You know, it was sort of showing they're there to support these women. I think the Dix Sporting Goods, they have action behind their words right there. And I haven't really seen that from Nike as much. And for those who might only have sort of a passing knowledge of what the real issue was with some of the maternity leave clauses and all of that in some of the female athletes contracts, what was it that sort of spurned all of this outpouring of, okay, hey, this really isn't right on sort of the track and field side with some of the new athletes who became mothers. So what was it that was built into the actual contracts themselves that really caused all of this? Yeah. So, you know, Allison Felix was, it, she was sponsored by Nike and got pregnant and had her baby. And when she was in renegotiations, uh, Nike said, you know, we'll pay you 70% less of what you're, what we paid you before you got pregnant. And, you know, rightly so she was like, thanks, but no, thanks. I don't want that. And she also was requesting that her contract have an explicit maternity clause in it. And Nike still wouldn't do that. And I think that, you know, that's just a big issue. And so now I, as far as I'm, I know, uh, Nike has changed their contracts to sort of give women uh, more leeway, you know, for 18 months before, you know, during their pregnancy and everything. And then in terms of returning after postpartum. And I, that's a great deal. It's a great, you know, thing for these women. But you hope you're, the hope is that all athletes can get these benefits in their contracts. Again, for those that are thinking, okay, well, yeah, there's probably a reason for it to be in the women's side of sports because men can't get pregnant. So that's something they obviously don't need to worry about. But when you look at it through the lens of would Nike ever build into LeBron's contract that if he happens to get injured and has to have surgery that all of a sudden, oh, by the way, we're going to reclaw back some of those funds suddenly you start to get why this is such a big deal, right? And is that something that 
you think people overlook because they just think, well, okay, it's a women's issue because men can't get pregnant. So let the women deal with it. Yeah. You know, you brought up a really interesting point there, especially with one of the words you said, and that's an injury. Mm -hmm. And um, for women who have had, you know, quote unquote, maternity clauses in their contracts, they've often been described as an injury. And what these women want, you know, especially the ones that I interviewed for my dissertation, they explicitly say, why, why is this an injury? Pregnancy is not an injury and it shouldn't be viewed as one. It shouldn't be written that way in our contracts. It should explicitly say pregnancy, maternity, that, you know, use those ter that terminology rather than an injury because um, it's not the same. Now, obviously, a lot of organizations, a lot of marketing departments and all that are really trying to push the narrative that look how far we come. Look at all the advances we've made. But when you're looking back on, say, even just the last 10 years or so, when you were putting together your thesis here, has there really been that much progress? Or is this, again, just more lip service and spin coming from PR departments? You know, I think there has been some change and we are seeing change take place. It is happening at a really slow pace, but it is happening. And that is, it's good to see, you know, this is coming from athletes finally speaking up and sort of demanding change. It's, you know, coming from social media and fans becoming more aware of it, of the issues that are at play. Now, there are some organizations and leagues that are definitely more advanced and ahead in terms of what they're doing and in terms of support for these women. You look at the LPGA, they, for the past 25 years, have had support in place for their mothering athletes, where at all their tournaments, they have uh, daycare centers provided. And I mean, that's phenomenal. Um, the WNBA this past year, you know, with the bubble, they allowed their mothering athletes to bring their children with them. They had care um, provided and, um, you know, that, that was a great service as well. So you are seeing changes take place, but it is really slowly happening. If you're trying to figure out where that change really needs to come from, like what segment of the population needs to be the driving force there? Is it private industry? Is it women's rights groups? Is it the general public? Is it coaches? Like where does it need to come up from, from that ground swelling change? Yeah, this was, I, so I asked my participants this question as well. And across the board, you know, everyone could do better, you know, from fans, from coaches, from administrators. I think one of the things that is most important is the executive leadership and the need for more women in leadership positions. Um, and that was something these, the, these women uh, said as well, you know, they wanna see more female leaders because until you have uh, leadership that is helping to make these policies, nothing's gonna really change. So we just recently had author Julie DeCaro on the show who just released a new book, Sidelined, and it, describing all what being a woman in sports media and sports and athletics in America especially. But she made an interesting point saying that it needs to be more than just getting women in these positions of authority, right? Because she said at one of her local radio stations that she worked at, they promoted a woman to the head of the department. And the first thing she did was fire all the women in the department. So it's it going to need to be more than just these news outlets and these ESPNs, TSNs, whatever it is, just putting the token, oh, look, look, we've got a woman on air, you know, diversity is problem solved, right? Yeah. Like what's the first domino that needs to fall for it to not just be that sort of token, look, we got someone in place, we've addressed the elephant in the room. 
Yeah, for sure. So, you know, representation is a huge thing and it's going to be important across the board. I think listening to women's voices is key, you know, and that's women listening to women, that's men listening to women. Men don't experience the same things that women do, you know, experience, and that's just the way it is. Um, And so I think just really having open, these open conversations um, and not being afraid to sort of share your stories and experiences is a really important thing. So you already mentioned the LPGA tour is doing a good job and has been doing it, not just in recent years, but going 20, 25 plus years now. Are there any other leagues that are really setting the gold standard for advancing women in sport and doing the right things that women have been asking for for years? And what are maybe some of the other leagues that are lagging behind a little bit that maybe need to pick up their socks? Yeah, you know, um, as I said, the WNBA seems to be doing a pretty good job with supporting their mothering athletes and women in general. So I, I grew up playing soccer and I was a fan of you know the U.S. women's team for years. And I, I still, to this day, get so frustrated with the differences between the men's you know, U.S. team and the women's U.S. team. You have this women's team who has won you know, all these Olympic medals and World, World Cups and everything, and they're fighting for equal pay, whereas the men didn't even qualify for the World Cup this year. And you know, that's just setting such a bad example for women here that these women are, I'm going to call them superior athletes in in this situation, and they're being treated as less. So I definitely think the the U.S. Soccer Federation could definitely improve. Yeah, it's a great point too, right? Because if we go back to the men's versus women's March Madness tournaments, all the trolls or the people who are saying, well, yeah, there's a reason that it should be this way because the men are whatever, superior athletes, they bring in more ratings, They all of that is up for debate. We won't get into that. But if you take those same arguments and you put them in the soccer context, like you just said, the men struggle to qualify for tournaments. They're usually one of the first teams eliminated. The women are winning everything under the sun that they can possibly win, and yet are still fighting for all of those equal promotional opportunities, signing rights, bonuses, all of that fun stuff, and more. So why do you think and again, super loaded question here. I don't know if you'll have an answer on it or not, but why do you think that the argument seems to change depending on the sport? Is it just the fact that there's some guys who just can't get their head out of their ass and realize what is actually going on? So they sort of tailor fit the argument to the situation. Like, what do you do in these situations here? What are your thoughts? You know, I don't really have a great answer for that one. I do think that people you know sort of cherry pick when where their argument fits mm-hmm. um and i think you know people pick and choose the fact that the women's uh, soccer team is so powerful and so you know they are the best in the world yeah i just don't really i don't get it like why why is it you know one way for one sport and one way you know completely different for another sport it doesn't make sense to me and especially during covid and pandemic times and everything and things are slowly starting to get back to normal but People had a lot of time to stop and think and, you know, a lot of issues came to the surface and all of that. Moving forward, though, as things begin to reopen, we start to see fans coming back to some of these events and corporate sponsors hopping back on board with things. It's going to go one of two directions, right? It's either going to be, okay, we've seen the outpouring of support for the WNBA and the Nike ads for, you know, maternity leave and all of that stuff. And we're actually going to see some change. Or it's going to go the way of, okay, well, we've just had a year, year and a half almost now of 
revenues are down, sales are down, all of this is down. So corporate sponsors and the people writing the checks aren't going to have as much disposable income to maybe throw at some of these causes that have now come to the surface. Do you think we're going to be turning a corner here because people are going to start addressing the change? Or is it going to be more of a slow burn because funds are just down and there's just not the income levels to support some of the things that have now come to the surface? Yeah, you know, I like to think that it's going to be the fact that we've all been sitting at home and are desperate to sort of get back into our normal routines and are desperate to just see sports again and watch sports that I'd like to say, think that people are going to jump on board and just support sports in general, whether it be men's or women's, they don't really care which one it is. I also think that the idea that you've been sitting at home and people been in front of their computers or on their phones and things, especially with TikTok and Instagram and everything, they've been seeing a lot more about these inequalities and, you know, maybe are wanting to, to demand more change. And, you know, we are seeing this change take place. And so I'm leaning towards the side of change is going to continue to occur for the positive. So if someone were to elect you sports czar of the world, and, and you could unilaterally make one or two changes to how the women's leagues are marketed, how they're compensated, how they're any anything you want, what were sort of one or two of the most pressing things that you discovered in your master's research that need to change moving forward athletics wise? One of the first things, this isn't necessarily from my research, but across the board, you know, I'd, the idea that you have like men's basketball and then women's basketball, I, I, I get so annoyed that it has to be classified as men's or women's, just call it basketball and leave it at that. You know, the idea that you were having these differences in terms of the way women are treated and you look at the NCAA tournament and on the flooring, it was like women's basketball term. It was you know, loud and proud that that's what it was. Whereas for the men's, it just said NCAA you know, tournament. Mm -hmm. And the idea of having just, it's sports. This is, this is sports. It shouldn't be, this is women's sports. This is men's sports. It's just, these are people playing sports. I think that is, you know, a big thing in general. I would encourage sports organizations, federations, sponsors to, to sort of write in their contracts more support for women. Having these maternity clauses specifically saying that, you know, thinking of, of athlete mothers and the idea that being a mother and being an elite athlete, those aren't mutually exclusive things. The two can coexist. We're seeing that with Alex Morgan, with Serena Williams, with Kara Goucher, with all of these athletes that are doing this now. And the idea that um, these athletes are still marketable, even when they're pregnant, they don't have to just be on the sidelines. They can still be used in ads and go and, you know, be spokespeople and all of that. It's just, that's a huge aspect of this. And um, I think you'll see a lot more of a benefit for these athletes, if that's included in these contracts. Are there any go-to books or documentaries or anything like that that really captured the point that you were trying to make in your thesis that you either used in your research or discovered maybe even after the fact that you would highly recommend to people who want to learn more about some of these issues? Ooh, you know, there, there's not a lot of research that has been done yet on sort of sponsorship or like policies around sponsorships for, for these athletes and everything. And so it, it's up and coming. I think the biggest thing is just continuing the dialogue and, you know, asking questions and sort of supporting your, these female athletes. 
Well, Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. We really appreciate it. For those that want to maybe even give you a quick follow on social media, on Twitter or something like that, where can people find you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter and on Instagram, both at Alex Lynn, A-L-E-X-X-L-E-N. All right. Well, again, the master's research that you did, it's on a super important topic. We appreciate the time you took today coming down and sitting down with us and best of luck with what will hopefully be a more normal summer than we had last year. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. And that'll do it for another episode of the Dying Sports Podcast on the Dying Sports Podcast Network. As always, a huge thank you goes out to all three of our guests today, Shai, Alex, and Alan, for sitting down with us and talking all things sports and lending their expertise to all of our listeners. Like we were saying before, we've got our monthly contest going on right now until May 15th. You can win yourself a jersey of your choice. So head over to any of our social media pages to check out contest details on how to get in on that. All of our handles are the same. They're all at Dying Sports, one word. So go and check that out. Subscribe to our YouTube page to get your entry and see some behind the scenes stuff that we've got going on there. New content going up all the time as well. Until next time, folks, stay safe, have a great weekend, and we'll see you next time.